You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good Hi. afternoon. <laughs> it's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, the newest member of the Accounting Matters podcast team and Embark's resident Tampa market president. I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's accounting advisory practice leader. Adam, thanks for being here. I feel like we're so far away. (laughs) So far away, yet so close. (laughs) On this week's episode, we'll be diving deep into the world of ASC 480, distinguishing liability from equity, with Embark's very own Julie Avalanet, a director in Embark's National Quality Group. Julie, thanks for joining us. Yep, happy to be here. Wonderful. Well, how's everyone's summer going? Pretty good. So far, so good. We made it through the heat. We made it through (laughs) the heat, right? And we just experienced Dallas's worst flooding in 100 years, is what they said. Apparently. Apparently, one in 100 years, we expect this to happen. Yeah, I will say, I guess for people that are watching the video of this podcast, they'll see a new setup because our office unfortunately got a little too much water itself. So I had to mix things up today. We're here. We're here. (laughs) We're happy and healthy. That's all we can ask for. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, I know today that we're talking about liabilities versus equity under ASC 480. But before Mm -hmm. we get into that, can you guys help set the stage a little bit about why this topic is so critical to many of the reporting entities? Yeah. And just to help maybe set the stage a little bit, um, some context around 480 is the guidance itself really comes into play when we're thinking about how an entity ultimately capitalizes itself um, in a lot of instances. And so maybe backing up a bit, you know, all entities are either going to be capitalized through debt or equity. And so there's a lot of different factors that can come into play when an organization is trying to think through more or less how they want to capitalize um, their organization. You know, one of them could be, you know, kind of the life cycle of the entity, you know, where it's at, for instance. So like if you take like a startup type entity, a lot of times, those organizations are they're issuing uh, preferred stock or warrants or other creative you know equity structures in order to capitalize. Whereas a more mature company, you know they may just rely on some debt financing to help um, achieve some you know, operational goals themselves. And so a lot of reporting entities are going to have to navigate the guidance when they issue certain types of instruments. And this guidance itself isn't necessarily always very straightforward. A lot of the accounting guidance in the debt equity space is very complex. And I think, uh, you know, if it's not an area that a reporting entity is used to navigating, they don't enter in these transactions on a recurring basis, it's more of a one-off thing. Um, A lot of times people get a little bit overwhelmed and a little bit lost. So that's helpful, but what makes the classification so important then when it comes to the actual equity instruments? Yeah, so when you're thinking about equity instruments or financial instruments, the classification is important because, you know, an equity classified instrument in most cases is going to be measured at fair value. And then there's usually no subsequent, you know, accounting for that instrument unless that instrument gets modified. Whereas a liability classified instrument um, oftentimes is going to have some type of subsequent remeasurement and that remeasurement will ultimately, um, you know, hit the P&L. So run through net income. So a little more volatility there with a liability classified instrument. But there can be also be other reasons that it's important to understand the classification. Um, you know, some of those 
reasons might include you know, an entity that's got certain debt covenants. And so maybe they've got certain financial ratios that they have to maintain and adding a large liability. So maybe you issue certain shares and they ultimately get classified as a liability for one reason or another that we'll get into today. That could have an impact on some debt covenants. Um, so there's other reasons that entities are trying to also be cognizant of the types of financial in instruments that they issue um, and what, how it will be treated under U.S. GAAP. And really, ASC 480 is kind of the starting point when an entity is trying to evaluate, um, you know, the financial instruments that they do issue, you know, whether or not it is going to be a liability or be subject to some other type of guidance. Yeah. So, but there must have been a reason, Adam, that FASB decided that we needed to di differentiate and distinguish between liabilities versus equity. Any insight in, into that? Yeah, it's, it's it's kind of similar if you think about like other areas where the FASB, um, you know, puts out more recent guidance. Um, I mean, this isn't necessarily super recent, but it, it's not an old standard that's been around. It was really developed to address inconsistencies, which is a common theme where there's original guidance that comes out and the application of that guidance creates like diversification and how people apply it. And that was kind of the circumstance here. There were, um, you know, particular instruments that may have permitted certain cash settlements that weren't classified as liabilities. They were still in equity. And so just some confusion to users of financials when, you know, certain organizations are treating something one way versus another way. So this is really to help try to cover where some of those discrepancies existed. Yeah, so then I guess on the flip side, does the SEC focus at all on this when surrounding any sort of filing reviews? Yeah, I would say, you know, obviously the FASB put focus on it when they, you know, issued ASC 480 yep. to address some of the inconsistencies. Um, and along those lines, the SEC also puts focus on, on this matter. Um, even with the application of ASC 480, because like I mentioned, it is a complex area of gap. Um, there can be some judgments involved. Uh, just, you know, the development of certain financial instruments contracts can be complex in, in their terms and interpretations and stuff. And so it is definitely an area that the, the SEC focuses on because of that. Um, so you'll see comment letters issued from time to time, particularly in this space, challenging um, entities about their conclusions. Um, it, it, it tends to also come up quite a bit when a private company is also looking to um, go public through an IPO or a SPAC, because there is certain elements of the 480 guidance that um, may only be relevant for um, SEC registrants. You know, when we think about the temp temporary equity guidance, that would be applicable. So those areas are also areas that the um, SEC tends to focus on as well. Yeah. So that's helpful. Julie, turning to you specifically, give me a rundown on what ASC 480 addresses. Sure, let's do it. So ASC 480 establishes classification and the measurement guidance for there's three different classes of financial instruments that could have characteristics of both a liability and an equity. So these include one, shares that are mandatorily redeemable. Okay. Two is uh, financial instruments other than a share that represent or are indexed to an obligation to 
repurchase the issuer's equity shares by transferring assets. That's a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> and then three, the third class is certain obligations to issue a variable number of shares. Okay, that's helpful. Julie, you know, with that in mind, let's dive in deeper into 480. Can you give me a rundown on exactly what ASC 480 addresses? Yep, so 480 establishes the classification and the measurement guidance for three different classes of financial instruments. Uh, that could have characteristics of both liabilities and equity. And so these three classes are one, shares that are mandatorily redeemable, two, financial instruments other than a share that represent or are uh, indexed to obligations to repurchase the issuer's equity shares by transferring assets. Like a puttable warrant? Yes, ah, okay. <laughs> you're catching on. Um, and three, the third class would be certain obligations to issue a variable number of shares. Okay. And so with all of that, an important thing to keep in mind is that uh, ASC has some general, ASC 480 has some general requirements. And it is that the instrument must be freestanding and that it must reflect an obligation of the issuer, not of the holder. So with that being said, ASC 480 isn't applied to any embedded features and other freestanding instruments that are not derivatives in their entirety. Okay. So Julie, let's circle back yeah. on those two general requirements in a bit. But before we do that, you noted that three instrument classes fall into the scope of ASC 480 yeah. and should be classified as a liability or an asset in some cases, I presume. Yeah. Um, but why is it important to distinguish between those three types? Yeah, it's important because each class has different recognition criteria in order to be in scope. Okay, and so, so since those are ASC 480, helps determine what instrument class yeah. those liabilities are and which mm -hmm. ones are gonna be in scope. Is yeah. it fair to say it also helps determine when an issuer should classify an instrument as equity? Uh, not exactly. It's actually a common misconception that just because the guidance tells us what instruments should be a liability, uh, it people automatically think, okay, well then it should also tell us what should be an equity because mm -hmm. it doesn't meet the criteria, Yeah. right? But that logic is actually incorrect. Um, just because a financial instrument doesn't meet ASC 480's requirements, it doesn't necessarily mean it's automatically classified as equity. It just means it's outside of the scope of ASC 480 and you should then apply other guidance. Okay, and so I, so that's helpful. So then let's go back and just revisit those general requirements that you called out. Can you walk us through what qualifies mm -hmm. as maybe a freestanding instrument? Yep. Uh, so there's essentially two factors that you would keep in mind when evaluating whether an instrument is freestanding or not. If either are met, then the instrument would be considered freestanding. They include uh, when a financial instrument is entered into separate and apart from any of the issuer's other financial instruments or equity transactions, or um, also whether the uh, instrument is entered into in conjunction with another transaction, but yet is legally detachable and separately exercisable. So on the surface, these two factors could seem pretty straightforward, but it actually is one of the areas of guidance that is challenging to apply. Okay. Since that's the case, let's spend a little bit more time here. Maybe we can take each of the two factors that could make an instrument freestanding separate. So first, what should someone keep in mind when thinking about the first factor? Yeah, if you have an instrument that is separate and apart from 
any other instrument in the transaction, it's going to be a freestanding instrument in most cases. Um, if you think about the like a single contract, for example, in most cases, a single contract for one instrument is going to be a freestanding instrument. Where some of the challenges come into play is that sometimes you could have something that's quote unquote in a single contract um, or an instrument that's in a single contract. But when you look into the context of the contract and start digging into it, you may actually realize there's multiple components within mm -hmm. that one contract. So it's not always as simple as saying, I've got one contract or I've got two contracts. So I kind of know whether or not this is separate and apart from um, other transactions or not. So that's that's where some of the complexity can come in. Okay, so that's where the judgment is involved. Yep. So the follow-up question is, can multiple financial instruments issued to the same counterparty meet the separate and apart from criteria for a freestanding instrument? It depends, I guess, is the probably the safest answer here. So generally, when you've got multiple instruments issued to the same counterparty, you have to kind of think about whether they were issued like in contemplation of each other to really assert that they are separate and apart from each other or not. And so if there hasn't been like a lapse of time that was between issuing both of those instruments to that same counterparty, that's considered a reasonable period of time. It's hard to argue that both of those instruments weren't actually issued in contemplation of each other. So they wouldn't satisfy this first criteria for a freestanding um, financial instrument. Okay. Yeah, I guess the one thing to keep in mind is just because you've got multiple instruments, you know, it, let's say they're issued at the same time to the same counterparty. So it's not going to meet that, you know, separate and apart from kind of guidance around a freestanding instrument. Um, it doesn't mean the those instruments can't still qualify as being freestanding. You still have kind of the second factor, which is looking at both of those instruments um, and trying to figure out whether they're legally detachable from each other and separately exercisable. Um, I will say if you've got multiple instruments that are issued at the same time, but they are to different counterparties, those will actually be freestanding instruments because the, the counterparties are different. Since I know many financial instruments are often issued with other financial instruments, let's dig into that second factor that we evaluate around legally detachable and separately exercisable. Yeah, you're right about like multiple instruments often being issued at the same time to the same counterparty. So when this happens, it's really thinking about, you know, like clearly they are probably issued in contemplation of each other. So, you know, if you're stepping back from the guidance, you may think, well, they should be combined as a single like freestanding instrument. But that's not always the case. And that's where the guidance around whether or not the instrument itself could be legally detached from the other instrument. Um, as well as it being separately exercisable. So looking at legally detachable. So if an investor or a holder of an instrument is able to more or less transfer that instrument to another party and they're not restricted from doing so, you'll often meet the ability to call that instrument legally detachable. You know, sometimes um, an issuer may require consent to do that transfer. And so you kind of have to think and use a little bit of judgment whether that consent will always be given or if they truly could prevent transfer of that, that instrument and not allow it to be legally detachable. So you first go through that and then, you know, you'll want to look at whether or not the instrument is separately exercisable. And this more or less means that if you exercise one instrument, so whether it's like redeem, settle, whatever, you know, whatever happens with that instrument, it has, you know, doing so has no impact on the other instrument or instruments that were issued um, 
you know, contemporaneously. So an example here would be, you know, if you had a debt instrument and with that debt instrument, you also issued warrants. So you've kind of got two financial instruments in the mix. You know, if you were to settle your debt and pay off the debt, does that have any impacts on the ability to still exercise those warrants? If those warrants were to still be outstanding until the exercise, regardless of whether the debt is repaid, for example, then it would be an indicator that they're separately exercisable because settling one instrument had no impact on the other. So I do have a question around freestanding instruments. And okay. so the question, can an entity actually try to avoid applying ASC 480 by just embedding this into another financial instrument? Now, that's a great point you raise. And the FASB did think through this particular circumstance, whether someone might try to circumvent the guidance by embedding a financial instrument in another host instrument. Because, um, you know, like what Julie said, is that 480 only applies to freestanding instruments. So if something's considered embedded, it technically would not be in the scope of 480, even having to go through that evaluation. But when you do have a circumstance where there is a non-substantive or minimal host instrument kind of construct that's being put together, you know, the, the guidance says that you should ignore that. So obviously that requires a little bit of judgment when you're trying to think through whether or not the way a particular arrangement is is constructed, uh, that you have a non-substantive host or a minimal host. And so one way you kind of think through that is really thinking about like, do both instruments in that case actually have like a specific business purpose? Like, can you actually identify a rationale for why those instruments were set up the way they were? And if you can't really answer that question, or if one of the instruments really has very little value compared to the mm -hmm. other instrument, it's probably an indicator that you've got a non-substantive or minimal host in this situation. And so you should ignore that when you're trying to apply the context of ASC 480. Yeah. So Julie, then switching gears back over to you, another general requirement you noted all instruments need to have is it reflects the obligation of the issuer. So that sounds a little abstract to me. Sure. Uh, do you mind breaking that down for us? Yeah. So that phrase, an obligation of an issuer, that's a fundamental concept for something to be a liability. So by nature, it's incorporated into one of the basic requirements of uh, ASC 480. So under the guidance, an instrument reflects an obligation of the issuer if it conditionally or unconditionally obligates the issuer to settle the instrument by transferring assets or by issuing its equity shares. Mm. And so we'll talk about each of those a little bit more. So an obligation is unconditional if Essentially, no condition needs to be satisfied other than the passage of time to trigger a duty or a responsibility for the issuer to perform. But on the other hand, an obligation is conditional if the issuer only has that duty or responsibility to perform if a specified condition is met, such as the occurrence or non-occurrence of a future uncertain event or maybe the counterparty elects to exercise an option. Mm. So, well then, can you give me an example of an instrument with both an unconditional and conditional obligation? Sure. Uh, there's lots of different instruments that could fall under each type. Uh, for an unconditional obligation, let's say that a financial instrument is mandatorily redeemable at the end of five years. It's pretty straightforward. 
Um, whereas a conditional obligation, an example of that could be a physically settled put option that requires an issuer to purchase his equity shares from the holder by paying cash. Okay. Um, and also one other thing to keep in mind around obligations is that if any party can cancel the contract at any time, that would not create an obligation of the issuer. Okay, so I think that that's helpful. Yeah. So what about an instrument then that includes a provision where it could be viewed as economically incentivizing a holder to redeem an instrument? For example, would this meet these, the creates an obligation of the issuer criteria? So generally it does not. Uh, when the FASB was contemplating ASC 480, they were considering whether an instrument in the form of a share should be viewed to embody an obligation to redeem the share if the issuer could be economically compelled to redeem the share, but is not legally required to do so. So for example, let's say you have a perpetual preferred share with without any contractual redemption requirements, uh, but it has an increasing discretionary dividend that's designed to incentivize the issuer to redeem the instrument by a certain date. But because it doesn't actually embody an obligation, it's not within the scope of ASC 480. Okay, so are there any other general requirements uh, to cover for ASC 480, Adam? One more thing I'll add is if you've got a financial instrument that isn't a share, so, a debt instrument, for example, like you're you're not going to apply ASC 480 to uh, a financial instrument that doesn't somehow involve shares um, in some capacity there. So, okay, and you use the word shares. Is it really limited to just shares? No, you know, like like I said, I'm using shares by reference, but it really more broadly refers to any type of like equity interest. So all types of ownership interests. Um, you know, would be applied equally here. So if you think about partnership interests, if it's a, you know, it's, it's a limited partnership, or if you've got an LLC type entity, you know, member membership interests, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. I guess the only other thing I'll add around shares is that if you've got financial statements that are issued at a consolidated level, so the parents consolidated financial statements, for example, you know, the, the parent themselves would also include the shares of any of their um, consolidated subsidiaries when they're thinking through kind of the, the application of ASC 480 as well. They would be within the scope of um, being considered the parent shares. Yeah. So Adam, that's been really helpful. And I think I have a good idea on the general requirements now uh, for a financial instrument and when it meets and when to apply ASC 480. Uh, it's freestanding. It creates an obligation of the issuer and it is or relates to shares or equity interest. But the question begs, where does one go next? Yeah, so once you've navigated, I guess, all the general requirements, because those are those are consistent across those three classes of instruments, you then need to kind of actually dig deeper into each of those classes to see if you specifically meet one of the one of the three classes. And, and we, we alluded to this a little bit earlier in the conversation, but it, it is important to figure out, you know, which of those three classes, if any, um, might be applicable to your financial instrument, because they do have different measurement and recognition and subsequent measurement guidance, um, depending on the, the class you fall into and the type of financial instrument you're dealing with. So um, definitely something you'll want to spend a bit more time on. Uh, Perfect. Okay, and Julie, last thing, 
we'll pick up more on each of these three different classes of instruments in part two of yep. this topic, uh, where we dive into some of the common challenges and issues that can surface when evaluating a financial instrument sure. against the requirements of each of those classes. But before we wrap up, any other advice you'd like to give someone who's navigating this for the first time? I would say that it's very important not to shortcut when you're going through the contracts and trying to understand the terms and conditions. Uh, you know, keep in mind financial instruments might be called one thing, but actually function differently based on the terms that are in the agreement. So for example, you could have a share that's described contractually as redeemable or mandatorily redeemable, but it doesn't necessarily meet the accounting definition of a mandatorily redeemable financial instrument. So uh, I would say that it's pretty common that you're gonna have to reach out to your legal counsel, le reach out to the team that actually put together the contracts and put those terms and conditions in the agreement. And maybe you'll need to utilize outside advisors to help you uh, apply the guidance in that area as well. You know, the complexities can only increase when you add multiple instruments that you're issuing and when there are settlement alternatives that exist and so on and so on. So, Well, perfect. Well, Adam, Julie, thank you so much for being here with us today. We'll go ahead and end this conversation for part one today. Yep. Uh, and thank you for enlightening not only myself, but all of our listeners um, and keeping us relevant and up to date on all of these accounting matters. Thank you again for following along and on another episode yep. of Accounting Matters, powered by Embark. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.